this special summer series of the Afternoon Light podcast, we're releasing the 10 presentations from our inaugural conference held on the 18th of November 2021. The conference theme was Menzies Early Years, Success, Failure, Resilience. In this episode, you will hear from Robert Menzies Institute Deputy Chair, the Honourable Dr David Kemp, who presented on Menzies' Time for a Reappraisal, followed by journalist and author Troy Bramston on Young Robert. It's a great pleasure to be giving the opening paper to this, what promises to be a wonderful conference. My paper, despite what Georgina said, is not strictly focused on the early years, but rather sets out to provide a framework within which we might consider Robert Menzies. We've heard from the Prime Minister um, and from Alan Tudge a number of comments, statements, propositions about Robert Menzies. And yet there is I think implicit in Alan Tudge's question, why has it taken so long, uh, an important issue for us. Why has it taken so long, 55 years uh, since Menzies retired as Prime Minister and we're just opening the Robert Menzies Institute today? My general thesis about why it's taken so long is that Australians find it very difficult to come to grips with a man of Menzies' stature. That if someone is a giant, it's very difficult for others to say, well, what made this man tick? Um, What kind of man is Menzies? Um, Who are we dealing with here? And I'm going to propose that there are dimensions of Menzies that are still under-investigated, under-explored in the historiography of the period and um, hopefully um, may stimulate others to comment. In the depth of the Great Depression in September 1931, amid the crumbling ruins of the opposition Nationalist Party and the Scullin government, Robert Menzies, on behalf of the soon-to-be-extinct Victorian National Federation, stated his belief in the need for a politics based on principle rather than pressure. And I'm going to quote him. I believe, he said, that a large majority of the public today is perfectly ready to give its adherence to a party which will display political principle and political courage. We have suffered far too much from people who have no political convictions beyond a more or less genteel adherence to our side of politics. That kind of adherence is worthless. We must have people who believe things and who are prepared to go out and struggle to make their beliefs universal. And this call for a politics of principle didn't come out of the blue. The younger Menzies was disgusted by the concessions made to the clamouring crowd of special interests 
surrounding the government of which he was a part, especially the most powerful of them. Menzies, as a man of principle, had already made himself known when he resigned in July 1929 as the newly elected member for East Yarra Province in the Victorian Legislative Council over the terms of a deal between the state nationalist government and the Progressive Country Party, which gave, he believed, excessive benefits to the country interests. Having entered the Commonwealth Parliament, as member for Kuyong in 1934, he resigned again on principle in March 1939 when Cabinet refused to support the compulsory national insurance scheme to which he was deeply committed. He resigned indeed a third time in August 1941 on his own initiative as Prime Minister while remaining leader of the majority party in the Parliament something that I think has never happened before or since, in what he judged were the interests of unity in his own party. There's no doubt that ideas and principles were important to Menzies. He would doubtless have agreed with the now famous comment of the English economist John Maynard Keynes in the conclusion of his general theory that, quote, the ideas of economists and philosophers, both when they are right and when they are wrong, are more powerful than is commonly understood. Indeed, said Keynes, looking to his own future, the world is ruled by little else. Menzies would later write, the art of politics is to convey ideas to others, if possible, to persuade a majority to agree, to create or encourage a public opinion so soundly based that it endures and is not blown aside by chance winds to persuade people to take long-range views. He told the founding conference of his Liberal Party in 1944 that it was a matter, and I quote, desperate importance to the future of our country that liberal thought be revived in Australia and the resolution establishing the Liberal Party, moved by Menzies himself, described the party as, and I quote, a federal body representing liberal thought. He would later describe the creation he led as a party with a philosophy, a party very different to the Nationalist Party through which he had entered politics and the United Australia Party, which he had led, each of which he saw as guided in their policies too much by powerful selfish interests, a criticism he also levied at the Labor Party. In 1954, early in his second period as Prime Minister, an older and presumably even wiser Menzies told an audience of businessmen in Melbourne that while policy expediency was sometimes necessary, he held firm to the importance of principle wisely applied. And I'm quoting him again, if I may say so, gentlemen, our great danger in Australia, and we are nearer to it at this moment than perhaps ever we were before, is that we should abandon political principle in favour of a series of purely ad cap tandem arguments. That's worth votes. That ought to bring someone in. Look, of all the menaces in the political world, that is the worst. He appealed to the businessmen present to accept that his government was closer to their own philosophic position than any other, 
and that in practical affairs, it was better to mix a great deal of principle and occasionally a little expediency than it was to pursue impractical principle and a million times better than principled expediency. The question I'd now like to pose is where is this Menzies in the historiography of his political journey? If politics is a battle of ideas, and if the world is ruled by little else, and if we concede that ideas are usually unusually important to Menzies as a politician, is it not appropriate to ask what were the ideas that drove Menzies' policies and politics? And in the context of the formation of this institute, what is the relevance of his ideas today? The appraisal of Robert Menzies has been a very extended project, the contributors to which have included politicians, public servants, academics, journalists, former colleagues, family, and many beyond Australia. I must confess that understanding and assessing Menzies indeed has been a long-standing interest of mine, stretching as far back as my later childhood, being a consistent topic around our family dinner table. My father knew Robert Menzies from the time of the formation of the Liberal Party, and Menzies, the leader and policymaker, was never far from his mind in not uncritical family discussions of Menzies' leadership, character and policies. It's fair to say that much of the commentary and even the historiography of Menzies over the years has given remarkably little weight to assessing the content of Menzies' ideas, the coherence between the ideas, how he deployed them in his political life, and most importantly, assessing their significance for national policy and political culture in his time and ours. In the long saga of assessing and reassessing Menzies that was to unfold in the decades after his retirement, the content of ideas was a fact that struggled to achieve any attention at all, nor any great weight, even by those sympathetic to and even admiring him. The assessment of Menzies has certainly come a long way since Earl Page's bitter attack on him in 1939 for not enlisting in the Great War, or any wards and indeed Labor's charge over the fictitious Brisbane line, or the passionately left-wing Manning Clark's assessment that Menzies served alien gods. Indeed, Clark wrote of Menzies, his passions for good food, good wine, the approval of the high and mighty, and the honours the British conferred on their gifted loyal subjects in Australia, that his judgment was warped and his conscience stifled. Follow the path of reason and conscience meant shedding all the pleasure that was the stuff of life to him. Needless to say, Clark's fantasy demolition of Menzies as a sybarite without judgment, conscience and reason has not stood the test of time. But as Menzies defended his record in his seriously underestimated memoirs, Afternoon Light and the Measure of the Years, his partisan critics condemned it and his ministerial colleagues, eager to move on, did little to defend it. Donald Horne in The Lucky Country thought that Menzies achieved nothing, and the interest of Menzies' colleagues in promoting change and reform in an era when these pressures grew intense led to the idea that his period of government had only been peaceful but one of stagnation. Although attacks on Menzies serving partisan purposes still continue, um, such as those from former Prime Minister Paul Keating, the turning point was ushered in 
in a way by Alan Martin's two volumes, published in 1993 and 1999. Martin's political sympathies were with Labor, but it became his professional mission to use historian John Hurst's words in later introducing a book of Martin's papers to simply get the history right. As a student of Martin's, I can vouch for Alan's passion. In his post-Clark task of buttressing intellectual integrity in the task of understanding Australia's political history and Menzies' place in it, Martin noted that Menzies has long been caricatured for their own purposes by politicians as well as television, radio and print journalists. Martin rebutted many of the partisan and ideological criticisms of Menzies, attempting fair judgments on Menzies' handling of policy issues, including the Cold War, nuclear and Aboriginal policies, while emphasising in words still present in many assessments that Menzies in his attitudes was a man of his time, with perhaps the implication that we shouldn't pay too much attention to his ideas today. Martin's Menzies is a highly influential and skilled actor, but Menzies' ideas and ideals do not figure much in Martin's account. Menzies the politician, Menzies the man, have received impressive attention in books by Gerard Henderson, John Howard and Troy Bramston. John Howard concluded that Menzies' greatest legacy as a statesman was to lay the foundations of modern Australia. Troy Bramston, who I see here in the front row, welcome Troy, concluded that Menzies' most contemporary relevant legacy was to establish a model for effective leadership that provided stability and unity with clear policy direction and philosophical conviction that resulted in continuing electoral success and longevity in government. What are Menzies' actual values and beliefs and are they relevant today? Menzies didn't hide these. Menzies assessed Menzies, uh, Martin assessed Menzies' 1942 Forgotten People speech based only on the single talk of that name, characterising it as a powerful piece of political propaganda. But it did not stand alone, that speech being one of 37 such talks that Menzies brought together in a book published the following year, 1943, under the title The Forgotten People and Other Studies in Democracy, a book Menzies himself described as a summarised political philosophy. We should note that such a book is rare in Australian political life. With the exception of Billy Hughes's The Case for Labor, none of Menzies' Labor contemporaries attempted to put their ideas into such a substantial and coherent form. Not Curtin, not Chifley, not Everett as a party leader, nor Corwell. The neglect and re-emergence of the Forgotten People book is in some respects the story of the re-engagement of appraisals of Menzies as a national leader with his ideas treated as political influences or variables, rather than as windows into his character. Menzies believed, indeed, that the ideas he set out were of lasting, timeless quality. Indeed, he self-consciously attempted to apply to Australian politics. In his economic and social policies, central ideas that had long been part of the long tradition of liberal thought that had come to Australia at the time of the, what now known as the Enlightenment. 
So far as I'm aware, from its publication in 1943, Menzies' book was not republished for almost 70 years. Until in 2011, the Victorian Liberal Party, of which I was then president, republished it in a handsome coffee-style edition. It's since been republished again, in facsimile of the original edition by the Menzies Research Centre. With the emphasis of liberal thought on the supremacy of the individual and its spirit that a creative, moral and harmonious society can grow out of the actions of free people living under just laws, Menzies advocated liberalism as a philosophical alternative to those who emphasised a government of special or special interest directed at directed society. To those who emphasised a government or special interest directed society and a politics based on identities of class, religion and race. The universal values and respect for equal human dignity embraced by liberal thought were, he made clear, the basis for a progressive society. In the difficult politics of the time in which we live, of national security, climate change, radical identity politics and the coronavirus pandemic, Robert Menzies' ideas are looked to by many in hope of guidance on policy. Menzies' Forgotten People talks and later expositions of his election speeches and elsewhere invite us to test Menzies' principles as they are applied to his policies for an economy based on private enterprise and choice in health and education, to freedom of speech and association, to the role of women in society and politics, and to Aboriginal Australia. I've attempted a preliminary assessment in my book on liberalism in Australia between 1925 and Menzies' retirement, but certainly what I've written is not the last word on these important matters. There have been recent illuminating contributions to the appraisal of Menzies' cultural context and spiritual beliefs by Stephen Shavura, Greg Malewis and David First Roberts, and in his 2017 Menzies oration, this university's current Chancellor, Alan Miles, explored Menzies' understanding of the role of university education in society. And of course, we now have letters Menzies sent to his daughter, Heather, which she has since published and which support the view of her father as a politician to whom not only politics, but ideas mattered deeply. Menzies' actions and his principles marked out a path to continuing reform and his successes have approached the task with enthusiasm. Thank you. You will now hear from Troy Bramston, an author and journalist whose presentation was on Young Robert. Well, three summers ago, I took my wife and two children on a road trip. We went to Japarit, where Robert Menzies was born. Now, this is what I regard as a great family holiday. And you can imagine what my now teenage children thought when I explained to them where Japarit was, um, why it was important and why we were going there. So visiting Japarit, which is a 1,000 kilometres from home in Sydney, gave the four of us a unique insight into Menzies. It really is extraordinary that a boy born in the back of the family's general store in a small country town in 1894 could become Australia's Prime Minister. We visited the site of the family store. We peered through the windows of the then-closed Hopetown House Hotel. 
Uh, we went to the site of the Mechanics Institute where Menzies borrowed books as a young boy. We examined the local archives at the Japarit Soldiers and Citizens Memorial Hall, visited the railway station, the general store, the local school and the museum. I was then completing my biography of Menzies, the first in 20 years, which was launched by Josh Frydenberg here in Melbourne in 2019. Menzies continues to loom large in Australian political life. He defined and he dominated an era in Australian politics and debate about his life and legacy has never settled, which makes him a very compelling biographical subject. In my book, I tried to capture the real Menzies, who he was, how he lived, what his values were, his virtues and his vices, and also how he gained and used political power. So visiting Japarit was essential in understanding young Robert and the man who became Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. From a young age, Menzies dreamed of becoming a lawyer. He insisted that he never had any ambition to be Prime Minister from a young age. I never had even heard of the Prime Minister when I was a small boy in Japarit, he later joked, and if I had, and know as much as I do now, I probably would have stayed in Japarit. But the genesis of the idea of becoming a lawyer came from a travelling phrenologist who visited Menzies Primary School in Japarit. This form of pseudoscience claimed to be able to discern the personality traits by studying the contours of the skull. The phrenologist, a tall man of slim build with a graying beard and mutton chop whiskers, wore a dark suit with a white shirt and a thin black ribbon bow tie. He rang his hand over young Robert's skull and proclaimed with absolute certainty that he would become a barrister and public speaker. So when young Robert told his mother about the prediction, she informed him that actually to become a barrister, he needed to go to university. But the Menzies family could not afford to send him to university, so his only pathway was via scholarships. Menzies recalled, my course was chartered and my mind clear, provided that I could win enough free passages, that is scholarships and exhibitions, to bring me to port. He duly won scholarships to study at universities, at university and also at schools in Ballarat and Melbourne. But to truly understand Menzies, you have to go back to where he came from, appreciate the family he grew up in, the formative people and events that influenced his future life, and that means, again, starting in Japan. So Robert Gordon Menzies was born in the small Victorian wheat town, about 350 kilometres from Melbourne on the 20th of December, 1894. He would be the last prime minister born in the 19th century. Robert was the fourth of five children born to James and Kate Menzies. He was named Robert after his paternal grandfather and his middle name Gordon was given in tribute to British Army Officer General, General Charles George Gordon. Young Robert was closest to his sister Belle and he admired his two older brothers, Les and Frank. But the two people who had the strongest influence on him in his youth were his mother and her brother, his uncle, Sidney Sampson. Sidney Sampson urged young Robert to read books from the Mechanics Institute in Japarit. And later, when Sydney, Sydney would give his nephew advice as he sought a career in state politics. Sydney Sampson was the member for Wimmera in the House of Representatives from 1906 to 1919. 
He had a big influence on me, Menzies said, of Sydney. He would walk up and down the garden path and ask me questions as if I was his equal in age and experience. Menzies' upbringing in country Victoria could not be further from the establishment youth into which many of his later contemporaries in the law and politics were born. There was no family fortune and few family connections. In the 1890s, Japarit was just a small town with a dirt main street and about half a dozen businesses and a few score houses. The year before Menzies was born, when the family moved to Japarit, the population was estimated to be just 55. Menzies lived an isolated but not lonely life in Japarit. He had a loving family, he had many friends, and he had plenty of books to read. But Japarit was often hot, windy, and dusty. There were few trees in the centre of town, rain was collected in galvanised iron tanks, and of course, there was no electricity. Along Roy Street was a bank, a bakery, a butcher, a timber yard, two general stores and the Hopetown House Hotel. By the end of the 1890s, the population of Japarit had grown to around 200 people. The Menzies family owned and operated the general store located on the corner of Roy and Charles Streets. The family lived in the back of the store and then later moved to a standalone house behind the store. James focused on the sale and servicing of farm machinery, while Kate worked behind the counter and managed the family home. Menzies gained a rudimentary understanding of small business and an appreciation of financial and economic matters. The store, like others, experienced some difficulty during challenging economic times. Farmers were often extended credit via merchants in Melbourne and charged high interest rates on loans extended to the store. Menzies recalled his childhood as a happy time, although he witnessed droughts and floods and had been born during the 1890s Depression. He saw emus and kangaroos regularly, he swam and fished in Lake Hindmarsh, and he ran through the town with other kids. His parents encouraged his learning. This was an important in shaping the future man. Young Menzies borrowed books from the Mechanics Institute, as I mentioned, and the family read aloud to each other in the evenings. Menzies folded and delivered the local newspaper, perhaps sparking an interest in politics and public affairs. He began his formal schooling at the local state primary school on 4 June 1898. The school was originally located in the Mechanics Institute on Roy Street, close to the Menzies General Store, but a later moved to the outskirts of town, which is still just a five-minute walk from his home. In these years, there were about 30 or 40 other students enrolled. There was a very strict learning routine, and the cane or strap was used to discipline students without mercy. In 1951, Menzies returned to his primary school as Prime Minister. He enjoyed himself immensely. He told stories of the teachers and fellow students, and he sat in a wooden desk at the rear of the classroom and raised his hand, pretending to answer a question asked by the teacher. He confessed that even at this young age, he felt that he was the bright boy of the class with nothing more to be learned. To understand young Robert, you also must understand his parents. James Menzies was born on 9 August 1862 in Ballarat. His father, Robert, and mother, Elizabeth, were born in Scotland. The family were rural tenant farmers. Robert migrated to Australia in 1855, 
He met Elizabeth in Victoria and married that same year. They owned and operated a small business that sold machinery to miners and together had 10 children, of which James Menzies was the fourth. James wanted to be an artist but had to abandon plans to study art overseas on a scholarship when his father died and the family was left in difficult financial circumstances. James was able to later establish a coach painting business. Now, Menzies' relationship with his father was strained. Menzies described his father as very intense and serious. James was stern and strict and explosions of anger were very frequent. James Menzies was also devoutly religious, religious and was a Methodist lay preacher in Japarit, as there was no Presbyterian church in town. He dedicated himself to public service. He was a Dimbula Shire councillor, including serving two terms as president, and he later served in the Victorian Legislative Assembly. Now, Robert described his father as having a nervous tension and was embarrassed by his often overly emotional speeches in public. This would influence his own style and approach to speech-making later in life. But Robert still respected his father and admired his commitment to public service. It is likely that this municipal and parliamentary career also rubbed off on young Robert. Lennox Hewitt, the famous public servant, worked with James Menzies at BHP for many years. Before he died, Lennox, uh, who was, I think, 101, told me that even in the 1930s, relations between James and Robert were very strained, but James was also immensely proud of his son. Sidney Sampson, Kate's brother, owned the general store in Japarit and published the local newspaper. He suggested the family relocate to Japarit, where the weather was warmer, and take over the ownership and running of the store. He thought it would help improve James's health. So the family moved, to Bal moved from Ballarat to Japarit in late 1893. James, having worked at BHP for many years, died on 1 November 1945 at home in Kew. Kate Menzies was born on 6 November 1865 in Creswick, Victoria. Her father, John Sampson, and mother Mary had migrated from England. Kate was one of nine children born to John and Mary. When Kate was just 12 years old, her mother died, and John, who was a founding member of the Amalgamated Miners Association, later remarried. Kate attended to her children and managed the family home in addition to working in the store. She never complained about living in an isolated country town with a difficult husband or contending with several children. Robert had a very affectionate and loving relationship with his mother. He found her to be more balanced in her temperament than his father with an appreciation of the lighter side of life. He described her as having a beautiful face and a calming personality that often helped to soothe her husband's eruptions of anger. Kate showed no favouritism to any of her children and even very late in life, she stressed that she loved them equally. She died on 30 June 1946, also at home in Kew. James and Kate, who had met and courted in Ballarat, married on Christmas Day, 1889. They had five children, Les, born in 1890, Frank, born in 1892, Bill, born in 1893, Robert, of course, born in 1894, and Sydney, born in 1905. They were a very typical middle-class family who prized Protestant values such as hard work, thrift, self-respect, independence, and community service. 
1905, young Robert moved to Ballarat to continue his schooling at the Humphrey Street State School. Menzies lived with his paternal grandmother, Elizabeth Menzies, along with his sister, Bill, who had also moved schools. Les and Frank had already moved to Ballarat years earlier. Now, Robert and Bell lived in their grandmother's small wooden cottage on the western side of town, opposite an insane asylum. Robert won a scholarship to enrol at Grenville College, a private school in Ballarat, and commenced in 1908. Menzies recalled applying himself to his studies in these years very diligently. He was encouraged every day by his dour and devout grandmother. He studied for six hours from dinner until midnight every night other than Sundays. Now Robert, his grandmother would say after dinner, go and get to your books. Robert and Bell explored the city to its fullest and also frequently visited their maternal grandfather, John Sampson. Sampson was the first president of the Miners Association, the forerunner to the Australian Workers' Union. So young Robert, in his pre-teens, would sit with his grandfather and read aloud articles from The Worker. They would then debate the merits of the article, with Robert often taking a contrary view to his grandfather. This gave Menzies an introduction to policy and political issues at a very young age and helped to formulate his own beliefs, many of which were contrary to those of his grandfather. At Grenville, Robert played cricket and Australian rules football, and he was known for his mimicry and oratory. We can see the young barrister and politician emerging with an eye for the spotlight. And after a few years of study, Robert sat the senior public examination and won a scholarship to prestigious Wesley College here in Melbourne. And so in 1910, Menzies enrolled at Wesley when he was 15 years old. By this time, James and Kate had also relocated to Melbourne, having made a tenfold profit on a 640-acre farm in Japarit. Menzies was known at Wesley for being confident, overly proud, somewhat arrogant, but of course he had much to be proud of. He was charming and good-looking, he often, but he often rubbed people the wrong way with his arrogance and his ambition. These qualities, of course, would help carry him into politics and help him to attain state and federal ministry positions and the prime ministership, but he would pay a price for this, I think, in 1941. His academic results were mixed and he did not win a scholarship to university at the end of his first or second year at Wesley. Percy Josky, who knew Menzies then, said he did not shine in his first years. But at the end of his third year, Menzies won an exhibition or scholarship to study at university. He enrolled in a Bachelor of Laws here at the University of Melbourne in 1913. He did well, studying English, history, psychology, Latin and economics and a range of law subjects in his third and fourth years, and he passed with first-class honours. He went on to complete a Master of Laws in 1918 and collected a range of glittering prizes. He was also elected President of the Students' Representative Council, President of the Law Students' Society, President of the Students' Christian Union. He helped establish a historical society. He also became editor of Melbourne University magazine, which was published three times a year. In 1919, Menzies was employed as a sessional academic in the law school and then spent a year as an article clerk with a Melbourne solicitor. His star was now ascendant. 
Now, other speakers at this conference will talk about Menzies' education and legal career, but I want to mention this important discovery I made while writing my biography of Menzies. In 1972 and 1973, Menzies gave a series of interviews to journalist Francis McNichol for a biography, his official biography, that was never completed. These interviews had not been previously available. But in the interviews, Menzies talked about his upbringing, he reflected on political events, policies, personalities, and he offered political lessons drawn from his experience. One of the seminal events in Menzies' young life was his decision not to enlist in the First World War. The war had plunged the Menzies family into turmoil. His older brothers, Les and Frank, enlisted and were sent abroad. Bell had eloped with a soldier, George Green, and was banished from the family. Menzies revealed that his father was so stricken with grief that he nearly died. So after a family at a family conference, it was decided that Menzies, then still a university student, would not enlist but would remain in Melbourne to help look after the family. This decision affected him very deeply. About 40% of young men in Australia enlisted to serve in the war. Menzies was branded a coward for not enlisting, and this, he said, had a very searing effect on my mind. So he decided to go into politics, viewing it as public service of some kind to erase the perceived stain on his name. I just had to do something to justify my existence, he recalled in these interviews. So the upshot was that the First World War was the decisive event that propelled Menzies into politics. It was not just a reason to stand for Parliament, but the dominating reason he said. Now, Robert Menzies returned to his birthplace of Japarit in the spring of 1966, following his retirement as Prime Minister. The occasion was the unveiling of a plaque affixed to the base of a 70-foot steel spire with an illuminated purple thistle atop that had been erected in his honour. It's still there today. It was a grand occasion. Japarit's population of 770 people more than trebled. Crowds lined the streets and waved enthusiastically as Menzies' black chauffeur-driven car with its sink ports banner affixed to the front arrived. There were three pipe bands and two brass bands to herald his arrival. There were banners and streamers. The mood was absolutely electric. The small Wimmera township had not witnessed anything like it before. In his speech, delivered outside beneath the vast blue sky, Menzies spoke about growing up in Japarit. It was a moving speech. He said it was a great place, he said, and one of the advantages was that we lived in a community and this, he said, had invested him with a moral and spiritual standard that he otherwise might not have gained growing up in a more turbulent and bustling community in the city. Today, today Japarit has not changed all that much since Robert Menzies roamed the streets, but it's a pity the local store has been demolished. But you can still glimpse the life that he lived, and understand the place that helped shape the man he became. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this special summer series of the Afternoon Light podcast featuring Robert Menzies Institute Deputy Chair, the Honourable Dr David Kemp, whose presentation was on Menzies' time for a reappraisal, followed by journalist and author Troy Bramston's presentation on Young Robert. Next week, we will be featuring an episode 
with the presentation from High Court Judge, the Honourable Justice James Edelman, whose presentation was on Menzies and the Law. Thank you for joining us this week.